In June of 1638, Lord Baltimore received a copy of the 41 laws the colonists had passed after rejecting his own laws, as well as three letters discussing the proceedings of the colony's second assembly. And I think that examining them is a good way to talk about what was going on in Maryland at the time, and in particular, the legal and political debates in the colony. The laws that Baltimore had sent to the colonists don't exist anymore, and neither do the laws the colonists had sent to Baltimore. So this is also the only real way we have to investigate the contents of their proposals. You're listening to the American History Podcast with Sarah Tungsalvola, the show exploring who we are and why by tracing American history from the 17th century to the 20th. All too often, it's extremely difficult to get a balanced view of the debates of those early colonies. Jamestown was unique in that the debates were recorded as different factions tried to justify themselves to the Virginia Company and to the Crown. We get unmistakable evidence that there were major disputes in Plymouth, but we almost never get both sides of the story there. In Massachusetts, we at least get both sides of the story in some of the major, more central debates, though not for all of them. But now in Maryland, we've entered a situation in which everything was done extremely informally. That means that a lot of stuff just wasn't documented. And then a lot of the documentation was lost. Add to that the fact that Maryland colonists really did seem to be civil to each other a lot of the time, and we don't get the chance to examine the actual practical problems and ideological differences which had emerged in the colony. Just like in every colony, colonists had risked and sacrificed a huge amount to relocate to America, And just like in every colony, though they might have been united on some issues, none of them shared the exact same vision of what an ideal society looked like. They were all extremely invested in the outcome, but they didn't share the same ultimate vision. So, let's get into those letters. One came from Baltimore's brother, Leonard Calvert. Calvert told Baltimore that he had tried to get the assembly to pass the laws that he'd sent over, but that there had been so many provisions which went against the people's interests that it was absolutely impossible to get them to ratify it. He also said that he was working to procure profitable commodities for his brother from Maryland. And that brings us to the first point of discussion, which is that Baltimore's finances had taken a serious hit thanks to his establishment of Maryland and all the legal battles surrounding it. In fact, he'd moved in with his father-in-law, the Earl of Arundel, in an attempt to help minimize expenses. He'd paid for the whole voyage of the Ark and Dove himself, and now he'd been forced to stay in England and deal with years of court cases, and he was feeling the financial strain. Calvert wasn't alone in his attempts 
to suggest ways that his brother could start to recoup some of the losses. It seems to have been a major source of discussion in the colony at the time. The other point of interest in Calvert's letter was that Calvert expressed reservations about Jerome Hawley, who he said may have willingly allowed the situation in Kent Island to deteriorate so that he could trade there himself, and who had tried to dissuade Calvert from the expedition to arrest Smith and Butler. Calvert had a strong preference for Luger, who had been the only other person in the colony willing to accept the proprietor's proposed laws. The second letter came from Cornwallis. Simplest thing first, Calvert had recommended to Baltimore that only he, Baltimore, and Cornwallis share in the profits from trading ventures. And in this letter, Cornwallis asked Baltimore to implement this policy. At first, that sounds self-serving, but these were people putting a huge amount of their personal time and personal money into Maryland. If they had to rely on tobacco cultivation to survive financially, Cornwallis in particular would be forced to leave Maryland. He had actually been paying for public works out of his own pocket, things like a grist mill and he'd nearly exhausted his inheritance. Add to that the fact that he frequently acted as governor, led armed troops in conflict with Kent Island and in case of Indian attack, and he just couldn't survive exclusively as a cultivator of the land. Instead of increased taxation New England style, the proposed economic help he needed would come in the form of exclusive shares in trade, and Baltimore agreed to this petition. The bulk of Cornwallis's letter, though, is a firm rebuke. It's not detailed in content, though he does assure the Lord Proprietor of Hawley's loyalty, but he tells Baltimore that he must reject the group of laws that the colonists have sent over. Period. End of story. In one of the more interesting quotes, he said, I should be as confident to see this same a happy commonwealth as I am now of the contrary, if your lordship be not more wary in confirming than we have been wise in proposing. Cornwallis was worried about the damage that the laws would do to ordinary colonists, but he was absolutely frantic about the damage that the laws would do to the church, and in fact, he thought that if the colony was willing to pass laws that were this damaging to the church, then nothing should ever be allowed to pass unless clergymen approved it first. They had come all this way, not to get rich, but to follow their Catholic faith, and this set of laws would destroy that. So clearly, on the subject of the new legislation, it was Calvert and Luger against Cornwallis and Hawley. In a way, that actually makes it more notable that Calvert would recommend him to share in exclusive trading privileges and to keep him as one of the most trusted men in the colony. But Cornwallis and Hawley had been on the losing side. And that brings us to the third letter, and by far the most detailed 
which came from one of the Jesuit priests named Thomas Copley, and in fact we should briefly introduce Copley himself. Copley was from a family who had pretty much remained in exile since the reign of Queen Elizabeth. His grandfather had gone into exile in 1570, but had frequently written to the Queen, who had strongly favored him when he was a Protestant, as well as William Cecil and other ministers asking to be pardoned so that he could return home. They'd refused, and the family had been in exile pretty much ever since. Father Copley had been born in Madrid, become a Jesuit, and in 1637, gone to Maryland under the alias of Philip Fisher. There, he had quickly showed organizational skills and and soon took over the administration of the mission, hence why he's the person writing to Baltimore here. Unlike the other two letter writers, Copley criticized Baltimore directly, insinuating that all Baltimore wanted from Maryland was profit from trade, and saying that it was unreasonable for Baltimore to hope for a return so quickly. This was evidently provoked by the set of laws that Baltimore had proposed, which Copley said that even Calvert and Luger had admitted weren't fit for the colony. He hadn't seen Baltimore's laws until after the debate, and he'd only been given the briefest glimpse of the laws that the colony had passed, but he said that he'd read enough to know that the laws which had been sent to Baltimore for approval would destroy the colony, as well as the church within the colony. To start with, the laws would require every manor to have at least 20 men, and to employ 15 trained soldiers, and to plant two acres of corn for every person living there, as well as to lay out glebe lands, which, according to English institution, would be the lands that the colony's clergy would use to grow corn. Plus, as they were faced with this increased obligation, colonists would also lose any portion of the beaver and corn trade. This would make the burden and risk of trying to move to America overwhelming, and it would force the people who had moved there to leave. Even one of the original planters had already told Copley that he would have to leave if the laws passed. Certainly, I conceive that your lordship would rather think it fit to nourish and support young sprigs than to depress them, and to go about to gather fruit before it be planted. The new laws would also force the priests to make their main vocation planting corn and tobacco, and not, you know, doing priest things. According to the new laws, every manor would have to plant two acres of corn per person living there, plus pay taxes in corn and tobacco, and to make matters worse, it wasn't clear whether the priests would be cultivating their own land, which is already too great a distraction from their mission, or scattered plots on all the manors in Maryland. They had been buying corn from the Indians to eat while they did the work of priests, and if they were forced to spend their time planting corn, 
plus losing the right to buy corn from the Indians, the priests would need to leave the colony. So there was a flip side to this giving of Baltimore, Calvert, and Cornwallis exclusive trading privileges. The Jesuits also relied on this trade, partially because of the money it brought in, but mostly because trade with the Indians had been their exclusive source of food. They didn't grow it, they brought it so that they could spend their time on the work that they'd come to Maryland to do, and they were shorthanded enough as it was. Copley insisted that the Jesuits only needed to be allowed to trade with one small boat. They didn't need much, they just needed some. Worst of all, though, one of the laws had required the redistributing of manor lands. Everyone was to give up their land and cast lots to determine their new manor properties, and they had included the priests in this. It didn't matter what they had built on the land, how much they'd invested in the land, or how they'd improved the land, they were supposed to give it up and be reassigned land at random. Evidently, the people who had arrived in Maryland after the initial settling had felt that the original settlers had gotten all the good land. So they'd voted for this law to even things out. It was absolutely insane, but at this point in time, the new arrivals were starting to outnumber the original settlers, not to mention the indentured servants who were now getting their freedom. Given their support for the proposed laws, it seems that Calvert and Luger, who was himself a newer arrival, were at least willing to let this issue go, while Cornwallis and Hawley strongly opposed it. Copley also opposed it, and not just because of its application against the priests. He told Baltimore that if the assembly could do that, then no one could ever be secure in their private rights because the majority could just come and take from the minority any time it wanted to. And if that were the case, then no one in their right mind would ever move to Maryland because as soon as they built something nice someone would just use the legislature to take it away from them. And in a section of the letter written after the main body of the letter, Copley says that in the time since he'd written the rest of the letter, Luger had publicly defended the idea that the assembly could take anyone's land it wanted. Copley was also upset about implications which specifically affected the church, though. First, this was just one example of the law's reduction of church privilege. Luger's faction seemed to be trying to put all church rights, even the commonly accepted ones, under state supremacy. Maryland's Protestant sheriff had even issued an arrest warrant against one of the priest's servants. There was a new law which required unmarried women to forfeit their lands to their next of kin, something which pretty much only affected the colony's two nuns, 
who had arrived with their brother the previous year. There was no actual benefit to this proposal, just downsides, and downsides which exclusively affected the nuns, at least at this point in time. Another law would punish anyone who exercised authority without commission delivered from the Lord Proprietor. And this is something that Copley noted would hang any Catholic bishop that should come hither, and also any priest, if the exercise of his functions be interpreted as jurisdiction or authority. So with a simple redefinition of one word, the church could be outlawed entirely. The law which redistributed land also redefined the priest's land to be the land of normal taxpayers, which meant that the priests would be forced to pay taxes as normal people, and in addition they were taxed 1,500 pounds of tobacco in that session. This would force them to divert their energies toward corn and tobacco production. Again, they couldn't trade with the Indians to get the amount necessary to pay those taxes. They would have to do everything themselves. They barely had enough people to fulfill their priestly duties anyway, but now they'd have to spend a huge amount of their time growing crops. And there was a second aspect of the land redistribution which specifically affected the priests. Everyone else in the colony had been granted land by Baltimore proportionally to how many people they'd brought, and they had paid the Lord Proprietor a quit rent in exchange for the land they were living on. This actually wasn't true of the priests, who had brought only minimal help from England. They'd been given a little bit of land, but the vast majority of their land had been given to them by local tribes. Many of the converted tribes had given the priests a portion of the land they owned, either out of gratitude or to establish a church within their tribe's town. Most importantly, the Patuxents had given them land called St. Matapani, which was on the river, enabling them to travel more quickly and more easily to the different tribes and settlers of the region. Boats were the main mode of transportation in the Chesapeake, and of course this made land on rivers valuable for everyone, not just the priests. All of the most valuable land in Virginia and Maryland lay on the rivers, but it was also valuable for the priests. And not only did the new laws propose to take that land and make the priests draw lots for it, they specifically prohibited the priests from accepting Indian gifts of lands. Now, when I say that the priests would be forced to divert their attention away from their priestly duties to cultivate corn and tobacco, it's important to understand exactly what that meant in 1638 Maryland. There was a small handful of priests by that point, about five that we know of, mostly recruited from the English Exile Seminary at Douay. At any given time, though, 
One or more of the priests could be sick, just like anyone else at the Chesapeake. And by now, there are about four to 500 colonists spread over a 30-plus mile square area. The priests took care of the sick, administered the sacraments, and administered the last rites to any Catholic who was dying. Often, this meant visiting people at their homes, which could be miles away, and they traveled mostly by boat or on foot. They also worked to convert the Indians, and this had actually helped the Marylanders as a whole, because Maryland became a colony which was surrounded by tribes who were close friends and allies based on a shared faith. And in 1638, the priests had been given occasional permission to visit the tribes of the interior. This usually involved taking a small barge with one priest, one lay Catholic, and one interpreter, a bit of food, an altar table, Eucharist wine, and holy water. They'd sail up a river, and if the wind failed, two would row the boat while the third steered. And when they reached their destination, two would hunt while the third built a fire. If the weather was good, they slept in a tent, and if it rained, they built themselves a small hut, wrapped themselves in their blankets, and slept until it was over. Copley also noted that the priests rendered their services to the colonists free of charge, and that the priests had not gotten involved in the colony's political system because they realized that it wasn't their place to do so. They hadn't opposed the passage of Baltimore's body of laws, and they hadn't meddled with the assembly. But Copley was writing to Baltimore to ask him to uphold church privileges, like keeping the church and houses sanctuary for the priests and their domestic servants and at least half of their planting servants to be free from taxes, for the government to maintain an informal stance of supporting the church rather than opposing it, and finally he wanted the priests' ecclesiastical privileges to be honored by the government so that they were the ones to decide what rights they relinquished. So now we have a pretty decent idea of the political debate which was going on. The colony's leadership was split, with Calvert and Luger on one side, and Hawley and Cornwallis on the other. Ideologically speaking, we've already seen that Luger was less traditional than Maryland's other leading Catholics in his relationship with the Roman Church. He had converted, though without accepting things like papal supremacy, and it does seem that he soon converted back to Protestantism. He was also a newer arrival. The Calvert's also embraced a slightly less controversial version of Catholicism, though they did seem dedicated to the church, and it's somewhat surprising to see Leonard siding with Luger. Luger had supported Baltimore's laws, though, and it's possible that this forged an alliance with Calvert when it came to the second set of laws. It's also possible that Calvert just didn't want to go against the majority of the colony. 
On the other side, Cornwallis and Hawley pretty consistently showed themselves to be more traditional Catholics. Weirdly, in the 19th century, some academics claimed to have found evidence that Cornwallis was a Protestant and a supporter of Parliament in the English Civil War, but the current debate seems to clearly show otherwise. But back on topic, there are some things we don't know about the debate, like why the majority of Burgesses supported these laws. As far as I can tell, we don't know with a great deal of accuracy about the religious makeup of the colony at this point in time, but there's also the fact that in England, all of the excesses of the Reformation had been justified by discussion and, at times, outright lies about how opulently the clergy lived. After a hundred years of that kind of story, it's quite possible that even pro-Catholic people weren't convinced that the Jesuits' interpretation of church privilege was right. Much like going back to a feudalistic political structure, it seems completely possible that there was almost an instinctive rejection of such a notion in all but the edgiest of recusants, and these people weren't that. The Jesuits had spent time in exile, though, and were part of a Catholic group with one of the most purest ideologies out there. So they could have assumed that the church in Maryland would have the traditional privilege. And I mean, as we've discussed, they weren't exactly living a life of ease or luxury. But at the same time, others could look at their getting one of the nicest pieces of land and not growing corn or tobacco and accumulating land via donations from the Indians, and instinctively connect it to those Reformation critiques. After receiving the letters, and possibly even being visited by Copley and Alton themselves, Baltimore wrote to Luger. Luger was well aware of the Jesuits' complaints, and had evidently even brought them up in a previous letter to Baltimore, but he stood by his position. He said he had never tried to encroach on the priest's rights, but that the Jesuits had expected rights that even Moore, who was the English Jesuit leader of the time, felt were unreasonable. Luger emphasized his desire to grow the colony economically and to increase profit for Baltimore and the colonists. And Baltimore did reject this group of laws, but he soon afterward granted colonists the exclusive right to write laws, reserving for himself only veto power. And he even said that the laws would be implemented immediately after passing, not having to wait for his approval, but instead they would simply stop being active if he vetoed them. It's actually pretty remarkable that he gave up so much of his own power for the good of the colony. And in addition, Baltimore modified the rent so that it could be paid in grain in addition to money. He started collecting rent from Kent Island, and he appointed Holly, Cornwallis, and Luger to act as counsel with the governor, with the four sitting on all cases involving life, member, or freehold. 
The governor should name a successor before dying or leaving the province. And if he failed to, the council would decide on a replacement by majority vote. The council would also sit as an upper house in a now bicameral legislature. A month later, Father White sent one of his regular reports to Baltimore. He said how well the colony was going, and he gave suggestions to promote its economic growth, as well as Baltimore's own profit. He also urged Baltimore to give greater privileges to the first group of colonists than to subsequent ones, as well as to establish three trading posts, to trade with the Massawomics, Susquehannocks, and Nanticokes. White said that he himself was losing his hearing, making it harder for him to hear confession, not to mention to learn the Indian languages. And he said that he might temporarily need to travel to England for treatment, but that that would also give him a chance to recruit more clergy to go to Maryland. Illness had struck hard, and White himself had nearly died twice in the past year, but he felt that he and the other priests had developed a more effective recovery regimen than the surgeon, Thomas Gerard, was currently using. In fact, he felt that the priests could bring the recovery rate up close to 100%, But the problem was that they couldn't reach individual people regularly enough to treat them properly. Therefore, he was hoping that the colony would soon establish a hospital. And when the colonists got Baltimore's permission to pass their own legal code, Calvert scheduled an assembly for February of 1639. There, they passed the laws which did form the legal foundations of the colony, and this was a very different document from that first set of 41 laws. And in fact, it took the form, more than anything, of a Bill of Rights. It's not clear why there was such a stark difference between the two documents. Perhaps Baltimore had expressed his opinions and pushed the colonists to adopt a more moderate piece of legislation, and maybe the split into the bicameral legislature allowed Cornwallis and Hawley to nullify the more radical suggestions coming from the lower house. It didn't lessen church privilege, though like I said, that debate would continue. The document had four major provisions. It secured, first, the rights and franchises of the church, second, the prerogatives of the Lord Proprietor, third, the liberties of the people in in accordance with Magna Carta, and fourth, allegiance to the king. Within this framework, they established a system of courts, framed oaths of office, regulated the planting of corn and tobacco, as well as fixing customs duties and providing for military discipline. They prioritized the building of a water mill to grind corn and a public house to serve as a government building. They finalized the election system and fixed the quirk which allowed people to take a seat in the legislature if they hadn't voted, though the governor could still summon people to take seats in the General Assembly. This meant that the governor could still 
easily legally stack the court in his favor, but that never happened under the Calverts. They also mandated triennial assemblies. The laws needed to pass three readings in the assembly, and somewhat oddly, the assembly only conducted two readings before adjourning. They delayed the third reading until the next session and decided to continue operating under common law until then. But it did pass the third reading at the next assembly and Maryland's legal system was founded. So just months after Nathaniel Ward drafted the document, which would in a few years become the first constitution-like document in America, Marylanders drafted the document which many scholars point to as America's first Bill of Rights. Thanks for listening. If you have any opinions, thoughts, or theories about anything we've discussed in the show, I'd love to hear from you either on Facebook or Twitter, and you can find those links at the website AmericanHistoryPodcast.net, as well as links to first-hand accounts and things. See you next week.